Hello and welcome back to Horror from the High Desert. I am your host, Scott Milder, and this week, as a guest, we have Tamika Thompson. So I met Tamika this year at StokerCon and was really excited to get her on the show. Just a little bit about her, Tamika is a writer, producer, and journalist. She is the author of the speculative fiction collection, Unshod, Cackling, and Naked, which Publishers Weekly calls powerful, unsettling, and terrifying, as well as the author of the horror novella Salamander Justice. She's co-creator of the Artist Collective POC United and fiction editor for the group's award-winning anthology Graffiti. Her work has appeared in several speculative fiction anthologies as well as in Inner Zone, Prairie Schooner, The New York Times, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. You can find her online at TamikaThompson.com. This was a really great conversation. We had a lot of fun, and Tamika is very quickly becoming one of my favorite writers, so I really hope you enjoy this one. We met very briefly at uh, StokerCon and then realized we're actually in an anthology together. So, hi, and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of wanted to start there, actually, with that story. It's called I Am Goddess. It's in the um, Sinister Smile Presses, If I Die Before I Wake, Volume 7, Tales of Savagery and Slaughter. (laughs) Uh, Long title. Um, title, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, I'm in there, too, just a little bit a log rolling uh my story is called monkey cage that's what happens to be one of my favorite stories in there. <laughs> cool thank you that was uh <laughs> the, dual, the dual timeline it's like mm. you're, you're discovering what's going on i mean it's just i won't i won't spoil it for anyone but i really enjoyed that story and after after seeing dead billy it all makes sense uh, <laughs> well it's funny that one i wrote that one really fast and was very unsure about it and it was one of the first i was sort of trying to push myself in a little more of a splatterpunk direction which is not typically what i do so i've i'm glad to hear that it worked for you <laughs> because yeah. i've always been a little like like oh people like that one <laughs> so. no and you got in and you got out of that story very quickly mm. uh, you know, it's, it, uh, you told, you know, you told so much and, and it was spare and I really love that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I loved I Am Goddess. And it's funny, like I, we, we talked at StokerCon, we talked about you coming on the podcast. I had read uh, I Am Goddess, but I hadn't put it together. So I went back and reread it and I really love that story. Thank you. It's actually one of my favorites in the collection. One thing I love about it is it's actually almost two stories in one. And I kind of wanted to ask you about that because there's sort of, I don't want to say a false ending, but there's like a perfect ending, maybe a little more than halfway through that if you had ended there, it would almost be like this nice, almost empowering kind of, you know, woman kind of coming into her own. And then you keep going. And it goes into a much darker place. So I wanted to ask about that because I thought that was a really interesting choice. You know, I see that as an origin story. Mm. Um, And that's why it goes darker and it keeps going is because I really am telling the story there of what society does to women and Mm -hmm. the value that society places on our looks. And Mm -hmm on us getting the prize of a man. (laughs) (laughs) Who may not be an actual prize. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Like uh, it's almost so much like you're so focused on on just, you know, getting this man that you're not even worried about the quality Mm -hmm. because your entire value is placed on, you know, how beautiful you are and whether or not you can secure this man. You know, this is what we're taught in all of the Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and so I wanted to tell the story of someone who is going to use that to some other end later. Mm-hmm. I, I think that I am going to come back to Lyra's story. Mm. And so that, and so I think that this is, this is just the beginning for her. When you say origin story, I mean, and now that you say that, it really, I, I could see her as like the antihero of, of a novel or a novella, you know, like there's enough there. I think this is, um, it's one of those stories where you leave it in such a way where there's just so many directions you can go with it. But like I said, I love that structure because I thought, oh, here's the ending. Well, that was an odd story for this collection because there wasn't much savagery and slaughter. And then I turned the page and I was like, oh, no. Yeah, the here's the savagery and slaughter. And slaughter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. But even that, she kind of, even, even in the beginning of that, she wasn't fully convinced of her own ability to be... Mm-hmm 
the savage her you know herself she had to even arrive at that you know right because where she's like breaking out of this so much of for for girls and young women um we have to be very polite and we have to take a lot Mm -hmm. and we have to do it with grace Mm -hmm. and and with a smile and Mm -hmm. and so in order for her to go from that to where she ended up it had to be this you know process for her so right yeah well and i you know it's one of those stories that and and i want to talk because we talked about um we're going to talk a little bit about the movie tales from the hood and you know and i think about some of jordan peele's films kind of work the same way where it's like horror with a political bent to it and uh that is such a trick i'm always so scared to try that because i feel like if you do it wrong it becomes a billboard and it's like any any kind of like political fiction or you know anything with sort of uh a direct message or statement it can become you know very much like like blaring the message at you and kind of forgetting the story what i really love about i am goddess is that you never do that and it's so rooted in this relationship and i don't want to i don't want to spoil it but uh, we'll just say it's it's a husband and wife and the wife is uh putting herself through some beauty treatments to try and make herself more attractive to this husband who's really no prize whatsoever (laughs) but their relationship felt so real to me and i've actually known people in those kind of relationships where it's it's you you never turn him into a cartoon villain you know he he never feels like a caricature of an abusive partner um which makes him so much more scary because he has these moments where you almost see his humanity come through and you're never sure is that real or is that just more of his manipulation you know like how did you think about that balance between you know obviously you have a statement you're kind of making with it but also like really creating real human characters well you know i i think that intimate partner abuse violent Mm -hmm. control is really a mirror for the larger society and so it's almost hard for me to tell stories about that that don't speak to the larger societal issues i don't know how to turn that part off Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that you know in these intimate partner abuse or violence relationships the the abused is almost a stand-in in our society for the marginalized or for mm-hmm. the people who are oppressed and the abuser is what we do in our society from you know policy to government to, it's probably no surprise that my background is in journalism and politics mm-hmm. and like that's that's you know I, I, I've had so many different careers over the course, course of my life, but yeah. before I wrote, that was the that was my day to day life was mm. studying, uh, you know, crime, violence, American right. society, government, and policy. Yeah. And so their relationship very much mirrors, I think, the the broader sort of control, state control, and state violence that gets enacted on mm-hmm. marginalized people. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You, so you mentioned that you saw my movie Dead Billy, um, which, which is also about an abusive relationship. Yeah. And like, I was very nervous going into that story. It was it was inspired very loosely on a couple true stories of people that I knew, including in my own family. But I didn't want to tell their story. I didn't feel like it was my place to tell their story. So it's very heavily fictionalized. And one of the things I really struggled with in that screenplay uh, and talking to Lauren, who's the co-producer and the uh, star of the movie, is I wanted the audience to leave that relationship with as many questions in their head about it as answers, you know? But that was a very nerve-wracking thing because when you don't, when you're when you're dealing with that kind of subject matter and you don't have a clear statement that you're making, you open yourself up for uh, criticism. And like one criticism I, I did get was some people criticized it as victim blaming, which was obviously not my intent. I didn't see that. I didn't see that at all. Well, that's good. <laughs> but, you know, I almost feel like I might have overcorrected too much the other way in trying not to you know, make a, a specific message out of it. You know what I mean? And so reading something like I Am Goddess, I, I really felt like just the way you found that balance was really interesting to me and really kind of inspiring that that is 
you know, that was kind of what I was going for, but I think you you kind of got there in a more succinct way. <laughs> I think, I think, um, and I don't want to spoil Dead Billy for anyone, but the way that I saw Calliope was not a vi- uh, victim at all. Like, from mm-hmm. the beginning, she's such a strong, powerful, intelligent, brilliant character. And I, mm-hmm. I, I feel that even though she is undergoing a, um, a very, uh, what we see on the outside as an abusive um, relationship, um, she is not navigating it in that way as she's going through it. Right. And there's a moment when they are in bed and he says something to her, and I'm not going to spoil it because I want I want people to to watch it, but he says something to her and she's like, no, you know, I, I never do that. Where I was like, aha, I see. <laughs> I see where this is headed. I see where this is headed. Yeah. Uh, and so when you get to the shocking conclusion, um, it, it had been there all along mm. and it is shocking. But then at the same time, it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. That's what we were shooting for. Um, you got it. Well, at well, least to great. this viewer, to this viewer, you got yeah. it. And I would, I would say, you know, that was an interesting experience releasing that film because it was the people who got the movie absolutely loved it. And I would say most people really did. And But then the people who didn't were actively angry about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that was maybe 10% of the feedback I got. Like, that's a compliment too, though. You yeah. know, <laughs> you know, I don't want that. I want people to have a strong reaction to it. Mm-hmm. even if they are not drawing the same conclusions or they have criticism at least they you know felt something they felt strongly even about their criticism i'm okay with that yeah. i don't know how you felt about it but i, I you know, that I, was I, I mean i felt okay i mean uh, like i told people you know this you don't make a movie like that or tell that kind of story thinking everyone's gonna love it so it was i was certainly not surprised by the reaction i was a little surprised by the victim blaming comments but um when i looked at it i could kind of I could kind of see where they were coming from, but I don't want to spend too much time on me. I want to get back to you. <laughs> so, so uh, I am interested. Uh, I did see, and you've mentioned it, that you're, you kind of started your career in journalism. And uh, so just expand on that a little bit. Then how did that take you to writing horror fiction? You know, I came to horror in a very circuitous way. Uh, to back up, I grew up in Detroit mm-hmm. at the height of the uh, crack epidemic um and at the time that i was living there it was a very violent city working class city um, mm-hmm. Union town. Uh, i went to school at a nearby suburb and from the age of four i was working i was doing i was modeling i was acting i mm-hmm. was dancing singing um, my mother put me in pageants mm. um, and and i was being um pulled from this very violent inner city world to go out in front of, you know, lights and cameras and, uh, you know, go out into the suburbs. And in the middle of this, I was watching horror films and reading horror books. And (laughs) my bedtime stories at night were horror stories told by my mom, my dad, Mm. my uh, maternal grandmother. And they really were just kind of frightening us, um, but in a way that was cautionary. I think Mm -hmm. it was a way to prepare us for some of the broader issues that we would face as African-American people. um, um, Just have us always ready, knowing that we always needed to be ready for Mm -hmm. anything. So are these like kind of fictional stories, but like, you know, they talk about this with like boogeyman stories are usually, uh, you know, ways to tell the kids like don't go into the swamp because the yes. whatever will get you yes and we are bloody bones they told us bloody bones it was the bloody bones story that was our boogeyman yeah that was my grandfather told me that too yeah, yeah. but it was like to warn us against a number of things calling the police we were not allowed to call the police mm. unless it was like a medical emergency and you had to say it was a medical emergency mm-hmm. uh, we just could not trust institutions we sure. We had certain uh, people that we could trust who were armed if we needed protection. But Mm -hmm. outside of that, you know, we just, we were uh, suspicious of everyone, schools, hospitals, doctor's offices, Mm -hmm. like places that have harmed us historically. And so this kind of played out over time where Mm -hmm. I got to college, I went to Columbia in New York and I studied political science thinking I was going to go into politics. And then Mm -hmm. I became interested in um, broadcast production, specifically journalism. 
Mm-hmm. And so okay. then I left, went to grad school and worked as a journalist. First at Network News, and then I worked at a PBS show as their like web producer. Oh, interesting. And, like, dark background was like always there. I always watched horror movies. Mm-hmm. I always read, you know, like darker books like Stephen King. Um, I was going to ask who were some of your big touchstone writers. Yeah, so like um, Octavia Butler, Tana Nareev Du. I um, love Tana Nareev Du. She's yeah. The, the um, what what is that the. Um, African Immortal series. The African Immortal series are, are incredible books. And then her um her her debut, which was the Between. Right. I like that book just like jolted me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've read it a couple of times because everything that happens at the beginning kind of gets turned on its head. And I right. Love- well, that's interesting. I'll, I'll get back to that because that's something you do a lot in your fiction. Is, do you think that's something you may have pulled from that? I think so. I think it's just within me. I think it's like mm-hmm. let's set. The- all up and then let's let's destroy right. it all you know <laughs> think that it's going to be this way but it's really not yeah and so and so i just continue to do that and when i had my daughter i needed something that wasn't deadline driven work every day and so i decided to take a couple of writing classes and i thought i was going to be like this literary fiction writer but the writing was all dark mm. it was all dark and it was all speculative so i was like you know what this i think that's really what i'm supposed to be doing so when did you like i mean are you still working as a journalist or in politics or is it no no i just take care of my kids and i write when i have time um i have a a middle schooler and i also have a Uh, Ah, (laughs) four-year-old busy yeah um and during the pandemic i didn't send any work out like i had i had written but i just was so focused on survival and Mm -hmm. Um, just so pressed for time and so last year was really when I was like you know what I'm gonna I'm sending things out I'm gonna get it out into the world and see what happens and that's how the collection came about that's how the short stories got out there um well I want to go back so normally when I've done these interviews I've sort of talked about the short stories first and then the longer fiction but since I think the short story collection is more recent than Salamander Justice right so I want to go now. You do have an earlier, I believe, novella which I haven't read yet. And remind me the title. It's a re-release. No, so Salamander Justice was a re-release. The original um, day that Madness Heart Press put Salamander Justice out was, I believe, the day after George Floyd was killed, and we were at the beginning of the pandemic. And we, well, I I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak for them, but I know I. was not in a place to do any promotion on sure so we re-released it last halloween so you haven't missed anything i did have um an anthology that i worked on back in 2019 i was a um, co-editor for okay um, maybe that's what i'm thinking so that might be what you're thinking of yeah okay um well salamander justice i just started i don't know if you saw i just started a newsletter um and i was trying to think of like what is the word i would use to describe it and the, the word that came to me is sticky because it's like both it's got that like I mean it's about salamanders which are sticky and there's a lot of salamander goop and mucus <laughs> um it's also takes place in Hawaii so I'm just imagining all the humidity and everything but also like I haven't really been able to shake it you know it's one of those stories I read it probably finished it about a week and a half ago or so and it just kind of like it keeps popping up in my head give us just a little bit of the setup of what that story is and and kind of where that came from that so i was in hawaii at the time that i um started drafting that story that that story is about a love triangle with mm-hmm. a woman and two brothers and she's been friends for a long time with one but then she falls for the other because she thinks that he's not really interested mm-hmm underlying all of this is this uh you know it's kind of alluded to that it may be like a government or a military experimentation on some salamanders and Mm -hmm. they just kind of treat the salamanders as if they're not really you know a a sentient being and the salamanders kind of wreak a little havoc in their lives (laughs) but with a speculative bent to it um (laughs) right And it's, you know, it's a love triangle, but it's also, again, with this theme that I'm constantly on is about, um, uh, about violence uh, within Mm -hmm. relationships and where, um, you know, and with the case of Vita, where does the abuser end and the abused begin? 
Mm-hmm. Well, that and that's interesting. And again, I don't want to go back to Dead Billy too much, but now that I think about it, we were in different ways, almost playing with some similar things. I think that's what I. I think that was what I connected with in Calliope for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I didn't make that connection until just now, but now that you say it, that's interesting. Yes, because Vita is so, and this is what I was thinking when we were talking about the between here uh, a minute ago is. You set up with this love triangle, a very classic love triangle. You know, you've got the guy who's in love with the girl, but then she falls in love with the older brother. And we think we know what that is going to look like. Um, and then it comp- then you, and again, I, I want to not spoil it, but you find some interesting ways to turn things upside down. And, and how, how did you approach, well, I guess, first off, how did you approach those relationships? Because I have um, a couple questions about particularly the character of Sam, who's the, the, the younger brother who's in love with her. Yeah, you know, Sam is an interesting character to me, to me because he thinks that he's so, he thinks that he's such a good guy. Mm-hmm. He really does. He thinks that he's a good guy. He's a pacifist. He's a vegan. I eat a plant-based diet. So that sort of, um, I think that comes up in a lot of my work, but he thinks that he's this really amazing character, but then he treats this other woman in his life Mm -hmm. with just complete and utter disdain and disrespect. Mm -hmm. And it kind of gets glossed over because he's comes from wealth. But I, I just, I, I find it interesting, his character, because he, um, he comes into the story really believing that he's been wronged. Right. And he, and to a certain extent he has, but he is not, he's not the good guy in my mind that he, that he thinks he is. He's to me, you know, we talk about, uh, I'm sure you've heard the, the phrase nice guy syndrome. Yes. And he's like the textbook definition of this word. And he's also the guy that whenever I meet a guy who goes way out of his way to like, you know, I'm a feminist or whatever, you know, I'm always like, okay, good for you. But like, let's wait and see. Because like, I've known and I'm sure you have way too many guys, men specifically, who use that as a shield for really bad behavior. They think they can get away with all sorts of terrible stuff by saying like, no, but I'm a pacifist. I'm a feminist. I'm, you know, Um, so I'm always like, let's take that with a grain of salt. And I felt like you really capture that with him. Right. And I think it's interesting the way he kind of categorizes women, which I think happens a lot Mm -hmm. in society that some women deserve to be treated one way and some women deserve to be treated another and that comes up again in uh, my story um, in my collection uh, with the woman who's going out to get revenge on the man who has um, sexually assaulted her in the past. Mm-hmm. She is a waitress and um, she is doing it, you know, in her mind for the sex workers who work on the street. This is, a, I did it for you. Yes. Yeah. And th- this idea that, you know, the waitress doesn't necessarily deserve the same treatment as the sex worker is like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And they're both showing up to work. Right. And so I, I think that there is, I think that some of that is coming to play in the Sam character in Salamander justice that he thinks that Vita is one person and then Melody, Melanie is like another person and he can, he can respect this one and he can like maybe not respect this one all the time. Well, and what's what I think you really capture there is the idea that, you know, he's he's putting Vita on this pedestal, but we see in the way he treats Melanie that like the moment Vita comes off the pedestal, she's gonna go down to that second category, you right. know. And right. there's not gonna be an in-between. It's it's a switch that gets flipped. Yes. So that is so that in and of itself is interesting. But then like I say, again, without spoiling anything, that arc doesn't quite go exactly where you think it's going to go and you invert some things uh late in the story and like uh, there are several towards the end oh shit moments for me where i was like oh that okay did not uh think that was but then when i thought about it i was like that totally makes sense you know but you have some really great misdirection in there some of this too I really enjoy, and that in the anthology that I did back in 2019, that was so much what it was about, is I really enjoy having fun, too. Mm-hmm. And so I I have fun with a lot of this as well. And there's sometimes, you know, 
there are jokes in there. You know, mm -hmm. there's some, there's, you know, I wouldn't say that Salamander Justice has a lot of jokey joke in it because no, but there is some humor to it. There I is, think. there is. Um, it's dark but, humor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but there's, you know, there's, there's violence in the story, and so I do take mm -hmm. that very seriously. But you know, some there, you know, I always do try. I try to find the humor in the stories as well, and and where can we have fun? Where well, it's. It is. It's entertaining. It's very fast paced. It's a fast read, which I, I think is true of really everything of yours I've read. But it's but yeah, you you find that balance between, you know, going to some really very psychologically dark places, but still keeping things entertaining. One story in your collection that I think does this really well, just jumping around a little bit, is The Bats. Yes. Um, because on one level, the bats is just a really great, it's, it's an apocalyptic story. It's a great nature run amok story. It's a great like creature feature, but then you get into this family dynamic, this, and, and, and I think it's, um, as someone who's like suffered from depression in the past, I think it's like one of the most kind of honest portrayals of depression I've seen in a long time in the midst of this like crazy creature feature kind of thing. Right. You know, that's grew out of my mom was living in a retirement community she mm -hmm. had moved into like this active senior kind of it wasn't assisted living it was just like active seniors kind of all living in an apartment complex and she had a she ended up having a bat on her screen which was mm. the inspiration for the story but what one thing that i came to see when I was, when I was there, um, I'm, my mom is very active and like, you know, she's out, like, she's traveling right now. Like she's just kind of, you know, very vibrant, but there were a lot of people there who were not and who were very isolated mm. um, and who did not have people seeing them all the time and did not, you know, did not have close relationships with their children. Yeah. Some of that was what they had created for themselves. Right. They had walled themselves off from, mm -hmm the people who love them and and that is the the state of the of the life of steve at the at the beginning mm -hmm. of that story he has really walled himself off well and, and it's really interesting the way it plays because there's there's a real interesting tightrope you're walking with the tone there because like i said as someone who has has gone through depression myself i really like responded to that but then i also found it kind of funny like again it's another darkly humorous one because he's a guy who essentially slept through the apocalypse like <laughs> you know he was just getting drunk and ignoring everything that's going on in the world and by the time he's kind of like wait what's going on it's way too late you know Right. And I thought that was really interesting. But yeah, the way you're able to kind of balance the kind of pulp elements, pulp horror elements with these kind of more serious, really psychological examinations of these characters is really interesting. Yeah, I do take some time in my revision um, to figure out the aboutness of the story. Mm -hmm. I think revision is where the author earns its reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I get through the drafting pretty early and I try to spend most of my time with the story in the revision and just mm -hmm. going back and figuring out what the story is trying to say. Right. Trying to say. And so I usually know what, I mean, it's not always like I can, I can tell you like in a succinct, like one sentence, like, mm -hmm. you know, what the story is trying to say, but there, there are some nugget within me as I'm coming to the end of, you know, working on this before I send it out for publication where I know, okay, this is where we're, this is, this is what we're touching upon here. Right. Well, that that's interesting the way you said it. Cause that's, you know, I teach screenwriting and I've, I've made this point to my students because I'm always pushing the idea that revision is where it really happens. And I say, you got to understand the difference between plot and story. Plot is what happens. It's the series of events that happens. That's what your first draft is for. And then the story is all the nuances. And that really comes from character. It's all the character choices and stuff. And a lot of that, you know, how the character is reacting to the what happens. And a lot of that is what you find in the revision. It sounds like you're kind of saying the same thing over. Yeah, and the revision for some of these stories took a really long time. Um, that bat story I wrote probably a decade ago. Oh wow! Um, yeah, and the book, the book, you know, the collection just came out in January, <laughs> and it had been previously published, but it took me a while to get it published. And um, we, I think we 
I think Eddie and I might have made some slight changes to it before we put it in the collection. Okay. But you know, this collection, when I when I brought it together to actually send it out to see if someone wanted to publish it, was a you know not a super long process, but everything that led up to mm -hmm. making that point was like you know this is like a decade in the works, you know. Right, I'm I'm in the middle of that, and I've got a collection. I'm starting to try and shop around, figure out what to do with. And yeah, and I have some. I have one story in there that's over twenty years old. So yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And then you know, I changed my um, I changed my stories around. I had I had thirteen stories, but then I switched one out and I put another one mm -hmm. in. Right. Know, with some of that, <laughs> I didn't I didn't want fourteen. I only wanted thirteen because thirteen means a lot to me. So mm, interesting. Yeah. 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 So yeah. it was a process. <laughs> well, I love, so I'm, you know, reading through both Salamander Justice and, and we should say the collection is called, um, and I want to make sure I get it right. Unshod, Cackling, and Naked. Yeah. Real quick, just talk about that title, because that's a great title. <laughs> so, you know, one of the stories in here is called Mannequin Model, and mm -hmm it goes back to some of those themes that, that I've been talking about, about women in our society and what happens to us and what is expected of us. And mm -hmm. one thing that I did in that story and in another story um, that I believe appears in here is, I, I forget the title, oh, these parts, yes. Um, is that the characters come into contact with someone that they see at the beginning and they're like, oh, I would never, in their mind, I would never turn into this person. And then mm -hmm. by the they are essentially that person right. and that happens in the story mannequin model and that's the final line of that piece on she you know she steps out onto the street and she's unshot cackling and naked mm -hmm. and um eddie who is the publisher at unnerving he um created the cover art and mm. i feel like he really captured her, that character and her moment her transgressive moment where she breaks out of these right. societal shackles and yeah. she comes out and she reclaims herself yeah uh, so that's the title in the cover yeah and it is it's, it's a great title it's a great cover i mean that was what stopped me when, when i was uh walking through the merchandise room and when i met you i was just like what is this book <laughs> and, I, um, and it's a black woman you know, walking over cut glass, broken glass, and right. she, you know, her feet are bleeding and her she's naked and her backside is covered up by this by this sash, which I think speaks to the story in there mm -hmm. about the beauty queen, right? Because it's almost like the sash of the beauty queen where right. Right. and I think Eddie created such a provocative cover, but I have to tell people it is not me. <laughs> yeah is this you i'm like i did not i was not a model for this <laughs> yeah. this is yeah. Eddie's imagination <laughs> <laughs> but you know reading through it and salamander justice i was kind of trying to you know what are some of the themes that i'm i'm seeing and uh you know obviously some of the political themes uh that have popped up that we've already talked about um there is a recurring motif that you do explore of kind of nature turning against us and animals turning against us we get it in turn which turn really like i gotta say because i'm a dog person so like turn really bummed me out <laughs> but i mean i think that was the point because it's it's essentially the birds but with dogs kind of yes so but a little more complicated than that but yeah, yeah you know i i mentioned earlier i eat a plant-based diet mm -hmm. and I have always had a relationship um, with animals that has been in the forefront of my mind. I think it's because when I was growing up, my father um, had grown up on a farm and mm. he had a very different relationship to animals than what I did. And, right. you know, for him, animals had to produce something for the family. They had to earn their keep. Um, my were, grandfather was that way too. Yeah. You know, they're there for us to eat and to you know use to work the land and i get that but i just had a very different relationship and so mm. i i am constantly thinking about our relationship to animals because i think it mirrors our relationship to earth mm -hmm. and what we're doing to the planet and um and in in the idea of dominion and who who has dominion over the land and whether or not dominion means violence mm -hmm. we have come to the, it's almost like we have come to this conclusion that 
you know, being at the top of the food chain means that you can kind of do whatever you want. Right. And, you know, Phoenix is, you know, at 19 days today of, you know, 110 degree weather. Right. Um, I mean, I'm in Albuquerque. I think it's 105 right now. Right. So. <laughs> so at some point, I think we have to stop and take a look back. I think that that's what creature features specifically. Um, I wrote an essay about this, but I think that that's what creature features are trying to tell us. Mm hmm. If you think about many of the creature features that you probably have come to love, many of them have to do with uh, man's injustice to earth and right. some sort of government or military or corporate misdeeds. Well, that like even the big bug movies are all, you know, they're rooted in, you know, uh, nuclear bomb tests or, you know, radiation, exactly. or, you know. Exactly. And so that that comes up again and again in my work. And I think even Salamander Justice, you know, Salamander Justice is very much about that, the turn, um, even the bats, you know, mm -hmm. it, doesn't, it doesn't get talked about in the same way as it does in the other stories. But it's kind of like, you know, Earth rising up and, and, and giving us our due. You know? what, I, what I liked about Salamander Justice and the way you do it there is we have the salamanders. You know, it's mostly this, like you said, this love triangle, um, this kind of psychological study of this relationship between the two brothers and this woman who kind of comes between them. And the salamanders are in the background, but it's like they represent the negative emotions of these characters. And we realize they're kind of catalyzing some of this and yeah. that it's intentional and that it's like it's essentially out of they have their own agenda i guess right right <laughs> yeah and so th i thought that was a really interesting balance and then another theme and we kind of talked about this a little bit but i want to just go a little bit more i've got a quote i want to read you this is from bridget has disappeared which is i think the second story in the collection where you say quote i feel like you're angry with me her breath caressed my neck giving me a chill and making me firm I'm not, I said without turning toward her, but I was angry. It was a bizarre, unjustified anger that created silences and voids that had the potential to reveal too much of how I felt when I didn't know how I felt at all. I love that. I mean, I love the writing that was just beautifully written, but I feel like that really gets at something that you, an idea that you return to a lot, which is the irrationality of our emotions and what happens when our feelings for someone change and we don't know why how destabilizing that is or when you can tell someone's feelings for us have changed and we don't know why you know we there's this idea of falling in love that is sort of sold to us through literature and pop culture where it's like you know the the you know boy meets girl boy loses girl boy gets girl in the end and it's always that final kiss but it's like but then what comes next we think like it's always presented like once you achieve the goal then it's static from there on out you know you've won You've won the prize, like you said, right. uh, of of a man or a woman or whoever, you know, and it's never that simple. And, and emotions do change over time. And sometimes we don't understand why. And that in and of itself can be very frightening. And I think Salamander Justice, you do, a, you really, even between the brothers, there's a point where, you know, they're close when they're younger. At least Sam thinks he's close with Adam. And then all of a sudden it's like Adam one day decides he doesn't like his younger brother. And they never recover from that. Yeah, the dynamic between those brothers is complicated too because there is an idea of um, colorism within the African American community. Mm -hmm. There is the idea of the favorite child, the one right. that can, you know never do anything wrong, and the other one who can never do anything right. Mm -hmm. And they represent so much about uh, class issues within the African American community, mm -hmm. and uh, who gets to who gets to be the chosen one within our. You know, um, I know we had talked about tales from the hood a little bit, and we'll probably get to it. But the the three main characters in Tales from the Hood and the reason why I like it are not the the three young men that I think the majority of middle class Black America will want to put forth as representatives mm -hmm. of our people, right? Mm -hmm. 
they're they're drug dealers and and, and gangbangers. Right, right, right. And so and so um obviously Sam and Adam, you know, they they are both they both grow up wealthy and they're, you know, they don't they don't fall victim to those elements of our society, but even within that family, there is that that form of white supremacy mm-hmm. still playing out within that you know wealthy black family and right. it created this division between these brothers yeah and it's slight you know it's like when you're when you're writing these stories you might throw in just a little nugget mm-hmm. but it's there right right but it's interesting because it is you know from we don't get a lot from adam's perspective he's the older brother it's mostly either vita or sam and you know from sam's perspective he doesn't really understand why his brother just doesn't like him you know and so there's this resentment that builds there and then even his relationship sam's relationship with vita where he and this is where we get back to the idea of the nice guy syndrome where he has told himself that he's in love with her but he's never done anything to show her that right <laughs> and I, I i remember uh like i was reading it and kind of laughing at myself because i remember there was a, a woman this was well over a decade ago that i was interested in and we were hanging out we were friends and she started dating someone else and i was a real sad panda about it for a little bit and then she broke up with him and i was like okay here's my chance and then she started dating someone else and i was again a real sad panda about it and we finally talked about it years later because we're still friends and you know i kind of told her I was like you know i had a major crush on you right and i was like trying to ask her and she's like yeah you you needed to ask me out. Like you never actually said the words, would you like to go on a date? Right. And I was like, oh yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, isn't that so much of relationships, right? Mm-hmm. So much goes unsaid. Like we're having these whole conversations. Right. With kid, right. Well, and we, people who are supposed to be intimate partners, like we're supposed to have intimacy, but we still haven't communicated like basic things. Yeah. And, and like, and and I thought it was so interesting with Sam, you know, he he treats this other woman, Melanie, like garbage. He's put Vita on this pedestal, but he's never actually stepped up to, like, show her. And you make it clear that she would have been interested at, at a certain point. But his sense of entitlement is like, she should have waited until I was ready, you know? until i had figured it out and and again it's the nice guy thing about like i was your shoulder to cry on with your ex and all these things like like he's ticking off boxes you know right right yeah and how his and how his emotions towards her go from feeling of being in love with her to really just this all-consuming anger um and how that you know that when they when when we talk about the whole nice guy syndrome thing that's what it is it's like all the nice sweet behavior is always like with an agenda and when that agenda isn't met that can turn you know exactly and then yeah i got so much anymore yeah but what's interesting is that and again you have that idea that he doesn't even understand why his and and again without spoiling things there's a speculative element to what's going on with the emotions there but um he doesn't understand why all of a sudden he's so angry with her and so this, this uh, again, back to the quote where he says, I was angry. It was a bizarre, unjustified anger that, create, anger that created silences and voids. Like that really hit me. You know, just that idea when you're angry and you don't know why, how all-consuming that is and how just it feels like there's like a, an abyss inside you that is hard to look into. And also how that hurt transforms the person. I think that that's, um, I think that I'm trying to get at that as well is, you know, in a very overt way, I think in Salamander Justice, but in, in more of a covert way in um, Bridget has disappeared because mm-hmm. I've heard from some readers at the beginning of the story as it's um, sort of developing and, you know, he's starting to get frustrated because he knows that she's disappearing and she's not leveling with him, mm-hmm. that they believe that he is actually going to turn violent. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought that too, yeah. Because it becomes all consuming, right? He starts right. that those silences and voids, that anger that he doesn't understand is actually mm-hmm. starting to drive his actions. He becomes very controlling. He's mm-hmm. he's he started surveillance on her, right? Right. Um, all of the things that that we see in our society where intimate partner violence begins, it, it starts with that with the control. Who are you with? Where are right. you going? You know, what is she spending money on? Let me let me videotape her when she doesn't know that I'm, you know, that I'm filming her so I can see what's going on. Well, I'll tell you, like, the red flag for me with his character 
in terms of where I was not sure where he was going is, you know, he's talking about when he meets her, Bridget, at the beginning of the story. He is, he's like, she's the perfect woman for me. He's like, I was expecting her to have a flaw. And he names off all these flaws, like too flirty with my guy friends and things. So, you know, that's already in his head. And then he's like, no, but she was perfect. She was absolutely perfect. Nobody is ever perfect. So, you know, that like, he's going to discover something. And this, this strange, and I think that's not really a spoiler to say, she has a habit of vanishing, like literally vanishing. Right, um, right. And then coming back. And she refuses to acknowledge it. So there's this one thing about her he cannot understand. And it becomes all-consuming because it's the one part of her he can't, he has no control over, he has no context for. And he's the worst person that this could happen to because he is a journalist. Mm-hmm. And he- has to have answers right he has to know mm-hmm. he cannot, it's almost like to him you know he 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 fears losing her and he loves her but i think even bigger than that for him is that he just fears never knowing right <laughs> yeah well, like, I don't know where you're going. Where you're going. <laughs> going on yeah yeah i thought that, and then that was again one of those really interesting character dynamics because you know you never turn him it would have been easy to go i think the easy choice would have been to go in that direction where he becomes violent and, you know then it's about him sort of as this villainous abusive partner but it never quite does that. there's a lot of i have a lot of um, red flags about him in my head but he's never reduced to that and that one really ends on a very chilling note that I think the less said about <laughs> the better. Yeah, yeah. I do not want to spoil that one. That was, that was pro- Bridget's Disappear is probably my favorite story in the collection. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of feedback on that story. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the one story that is, I think more science fiction than the mm-hmm. rest. I find that interesting that that's the one that people connect with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything else I think falls very squarely in like, you know, dark horror thriller. Um, mm-hmm. That one is um, a part in a way. Yeah. Well, it- things, but definitely the speculative element is not, is not squarely in horror. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a little more going on there. But it also, again, it has like some great unexpected turns. And it really, I felt like it ended on a, an extremely dark note. Um, but again, I don't want to say too much more. We should talk a little bit about Tales from the Hood. So uh, I had asked you to name a movie that you had found uh, kind of influential. And uh, you said Tales from the Hood, which I had not seen probably since it came out. So I was excited to go back and rewatch it. And I have to say, for me as you know not african-american grew up small town you know new mexico when i watched it i had very little context for what the movie's actually about watching it now as an adult with a little more awareness of the world it hits different now and so i just uh i'm curious like what is it about that movie and uh that really like resonates with you Oh my God, how much time do you have? Um, so <laughs> the, the context for this is that I saw this when it came out in 1995. And at that time, there were so many influences, I think, that led up to this film from other movies like, you know, Boys in the Hood, Juice, mm-hmm. Mr. Society. Um, there is, uh, in one of the uh, stories in here, there is a sequence that is similar to A Clockwork Orange. Mm-hmm. And it's in the executive producer is Spike Lee. So, you know, it's going to have like a broader mm-hmm. like, cultural. Right. And so I, you know, I was growing up in Detroit around um, young men, um, some of whom were killed, uh, mm-hmm. who resemble very much the young men who go into Mr. Sims funeral home mm-hmm. to get the shit. Right. right. Which, is the drug, which is the drugs. that right. he's them. And so I think I was you know, I think I was drawn to the film because of that, because I very much recognize the terrain. Mm-hmm. I also think that the movie is just funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a horror comedy. And this whole idea that they have around the drugs being referred to as, you know, the shit is just really funny. And it was funny mm-hmm. to us when we were young when I was seeing it, like my friends and my family members when we watched it and, you know, rewatched it. But it's just, a, it's just funny. And Mr. Sims, you know, Clarence Williams III is, I think, brilliant as this character um, mm-hmm. 
and he is he is so like kooky and weird and that yeah. he's funny but also still like creepy mm -hmm. and i love how these characters get mesmerized by these four stories you know and i i grew up watching you know uh twilight zone tales from the crypt tales from um the dark side monsters mm -hmm. and so the idea of this anthology really spoke to me. But when you look at it, when you look at the stories that Mr. Sims tells them back then, they were uh, really important stories within the African-American com community because it's what we were facing. But if you fast forward to today, mm -hmm. almost everything that is in here has come to fruition on a larger scale. Yeah. And that's why I say it hit kind of different. And I think some of it is I'm a more mature viewer but some of it is, you know, these things, you know, uh, so we should say it's an anthology horror film. It's very much structured like Tales from the Crypt and like, like Mr. Sims, he's kind of our like Crypt Keeper type character. Exactly. Um, it's got that framing story with the guys with the drugs, but then he goes in and tells these other stories about each of the different bodies in the morgue. And each of these stories definitely has, there's 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 a social, socio-political aspect to it. You know, the first, and I definitely clocked it at the time because this would have been just a few years after the Rodney King beating, but you know, the first story is about police violence. And you know, and then that first story, um, at the time that Rodney King happened, it wasn't a common thing to see. Mm -hmm. It's like, you had to believe African-American people that these were occurring. And right. Rodney King, was you know one of the one of the few times back then where we were actually able to see it. Well, today we it's have all over. it's all over. We have footage. We have body camera footage. We have people mm -hmm. on their phones, and so it you know it. I think it really speaks to the you know the visionary quality of the film that this is where we ended up, right? Right. Uh, from Rodney King to George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. We well. And from, you know, I think I think it's the third story with the dolls where the guys were played by Corbin Burnson, who's running for governor. And it was clearly inspired by uh, David Duke running for, I think, Senate uh, in Louisiana. Right. Yeah. And, you know, again, in my naivete at the time, I was seeing, seeing these things. I even probably saw the Rodney King beating this way as more anomalies the the david duke running for senate was more of an anomaly in my mind and you look at it now and it's like he's, he's donald trump like we ended up electing that guy as president like it's, like it's ron DeSantis. It's, the two when you're yeah. looking at it, right so it's like all that naivete that i brought to it as a viewer has been stripped away and the movie looks much more prescient than I would have imagined at the time. And I'm sure for you watching it, it was much more hitting, hitting home in a way that it just couldn't for me. But as a young person looking at it, I didn't have the adult lens, obviously, but mm -hmm. it was very much my lived experience and the lived experience of everyone that I grew up around, but coming mm -hmm. back to it now, after spending years working as a journalist, I spent I spent two years working on a project um, about youth violence and looking at violence in America. And I think that that's why I'm so drawn to this film. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it is an African-American film. I think that it is an American horror film. I, I yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very much speaks to what our society does and how... Um, the experiences of the marginalized people within the society, whatever is going on with them eventually is going to happen to everyone. And mm -hmm. I think that this film really shows the trajectory from, you know, you know, public lynchings to police brutality from, you know, white supremacy. And we saw on January 6th, you know, the attempted overthrow of the U.S. government right. using some of the symbols that were used to terrorize black people um mm -hmm. the noose for instance the idea what? that you would take a noose and you would terrorize black people with it in the south and then you take this noose on january 6th to the capitol and you're gonna you know you're gonna use it on mike pence Not, right? yeah <laughs> yeah so i mean it's it's again you know it's, it's stuff that really thinking about how that you know, these things that we would have wanted to tell ourselves were fringe behavior in 95 when this movie came out, you know, whether it's the police violence, whether it's this politician, um, how much that really isn't and probably never was the fringe, you know, uh, that it's, it's still a very entertaining movie. I forgot how there are moments in it that are actually pretty scary. 
And we should say the the director is uh, Rusty Kundiev. He's a really interesting kind of visionary artist in his own right that I, I think probably has never really received the due that he probably deserves. You know? I can see that. I can definitely see that. I know he played the teacher in the story about the boy mm-hmm. who discovers a way to get rid of the abusive, you know, father figure who is living in his home. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was an interesting choice for him to play that character um because he's the one that's supposed to save the boy but then no one actually saves the boy the boy has to figure out how to save himself yeah yeah which i thought was great like i thought that was a really interesting you know because you think the teacher played by rusty kundi if he's gonna come in and be the hero and you know i don't want to spoil it too much although it is a you know 30 year old movie at this point um but uh he comes in and tries to fight the the evil stepdad character and is essentially gets his ass kicked and then the boy Yes. we we find out there was a little easter egg early on the that the boy has a way he can overcome this abusive monster character that, that monster character um played by david allen greer i find that's right it was david allen greer yeah. yeah within this film because in my research about violence um whether you're looking at you know gang violence sort of inner city urban violence or you're looking at um domestic violence or intimate partner violence or you're looking at school shootings or mass shootings there are similarities in what mm-hmm. has gone in these people's lives well one of them is obviously access to guns but the other one is that at some point they were victimized right they either were directly victimized or they were the witness to some sort of violence they all experience violence typically um and and a lot of times at a young age and it's almost like within this story that you have this boy being abused and he's being abused by this, you know, this monster, this David Allen Greer character, who you can imagine mm-hmm. was probably this boy at some point early on. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, and so I think that that story is working on many levels. I think that all of the stories are working on many levels. And yeah. so that's why I feel like it really spoke to me. I think, you know, contemplating American violence in all of its forms, um, having some fun and some comedy within the work. You know, my grandmother used to always say, you got to laugh to keep from crying. And I really mm-hmm. didn't do that. But also I think it taught me kind of what I also don't necessarily want to do. I don't want all of my work to be centered on black trauma. Mm-hmm. And um, I had mentioned it that I did in 2019, which was called Graffiti. And the um, I, I had co-editors. And, and one of the things that we wanted to do was to create a place where writers of color could come together and could write, but we were not going to write about our trauma, mm. our, our, our yeah. race-based or society-based trauma, no racism. But then we also couldn't talk about anti-racism either. Mm-hmm. And we were just supposed to tell stories and have fun. And I think when I walk away from Tales from the Hood, you know, I am really, um, I don't know, I'm inspired to tell some of these social justice stories, but then I also um, have to have a palate cleanse. <laughs> well, like, I'm thinking of your your collection again, you know, you have a story like I Am Goddess, which I think is much more kind of direct. I did it for you as much more kind of direct. But then back to the bats, the character of Steve, I think you do mention that he is black, right? Yes. But, you know, his, what he's going through is really, like, it's the collapse of his family, it's depression, it's it's a lot of things that, like, I respond, you know, I, I definitely responded to, but it does seem like, and then, again, it's it's kind of wrapped around this kind of crazy creature feature, so you definitely do give yourself room to kind of explore a lot of different directions there. Right, right. I don't, you know, I I wanted to have some range in the stories, uh, but I also wanted to have a range of the character experiences. Um, and, you know, even with the character of Yusuf in Bridget has Disappeared, that story, you know, it's just, it was a, I enjoyed telling that story, but it was not at any point going to be about race or, you know, they're black. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm that's true. It, he's, and like you said, you could say it's about, we could say it's about misogyny because he is kind of controlling, but like you said, is it that he's misogynistic as much as he is, like you said, this journey, he just needs an answer. Right. Like, why can't he get an answer to this question? You know, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought that was really, again, like, you know, when I think of a movie like Tales from the Hood, it's purposefully unsubtle, you know, it's not trying to 
be like a nuanced look at things it's sort i think of the purge movies working this way too yeah um and even to a degree jordan peele is really good at like he can kind of do both you know um but you know sometimes you just want the two by four to the head like that's what's required (laughs) you know (laughs) um but like you said you don't want everything to be that and i think you have such a precise way of exploring human psychology where you really get into the nuances that um i really respect thank you well, I do, uh, and I said you had about an hour, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to have you back on at some point if, yeah. if you're open to it. I, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And I will put a note uh, in the show notes, I'll put links to everything. I do uh, really strongly want to recommend both the collection and Salamander of Justice. I, I just think they're excellent. Thank you. Well, that has been another episode of Horror from the High Desert. I want to thank Tamika Thompson again for coming on the show. And I just want to remind everybody to go ahead, rate, review, subscribe, spread the word, tell your friends. And if you haven't seen it yet, I have started a newsletter on Substack. It is also called Horror from the High Desert. So go ahead and go check that out. And I will be back with you guys again in a couple weeks. Bye.